Hi everyone, this is Red Lines and I'm Anya Parampil. My guest today is Shahid Buttar. He's challenging House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for her congressional seat representing California's 12th district. Welcome to Red Lines, Shahid. Thanks for having me, Anya. It's great to be with you. I wanted to start by giving you the chance to say a few words about longtime organizer and anti-war activist Kevin Zeese, who died suddenly on September 6th, because I know that you, like me, had the chance to work with Kevin during your days in Washington. I'm really sad to see him leave us. Uh, I think it's, you know, this year has been brutal for so many reasons. And I've known Kevin for 17 years. and organized with him particularly closely during the Occupy era. He was very instrumental in one of the two Occupy encampments in Washington. He was among the people who helped me get oriented to Washington, D.C. when I first went there after graduating from Stanford Law in 2003. I recently had a chance to connect with him because we, he, we were each accused by the same person uh, of similar things. And so that was uh, uh, an opportunity to reconnect with him recently. And um, I was just really shocked and, and remained very sad. At, at having uh, lost him. He's a he's a light and and he will be missed. He certainly will. I, I, I don't think people realize the level to which he was involved with so many key moments in organizing, whether it's Occupy, whether it's around the trial of then Bradley Manning or more recently the Venezuela Embassy Prote Protection Collective. He was really someone who always took charge. And he was also really involved in in organizing solidarity and justice for Julian Assange. This week marks the beginning of extradition hearings, which will decide the fate of the WikiLeaks founder. How do you and your opponent, Nancy Pelosi, differ on your views of Assange? I, I see Nancy Pelosi as an active agent of enforcing executive secrecy, and there's never been an intelligence community whistleblower who she hasn't tried to kick down the stairs. And I've stood in solidarity with, the, with whistleblowers from Thomas Drake, to William Binney, to Edward Snowden, Julian Assange is someone, whatever people think of the political valence of his revelations, the fact that he was revealing information to the public makes him worthy of protection. That's what whistleblowers are. And the idea that we vilify so many people with information to inform the public as if they were spies is a reflection of the corruption of our establishment. And it's worth noting that this is not a partisan problem. Democrats are as guilty as Republicans of vilifying whistleblowers. And one of the reasons I've been endorsed by Senator Mike Gravel is, is, is for this recognition of the need to have members of Congress who are willing to stand up for freedom of information and stand up for the public in the face of executive secrecy. I remember, uh, I, this was before my time, but Senator Gravel was very instrumental in the public coming to learn the real story behind the origin of the Vietnam War. And that was because he was willing to read into the congressional record <clears throat> the Pentagon papers that were revealed by whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. And I see Edward Snowden now effectively resigned into international exile. And there's now a bipartisan movement to win him a pardon from a criminal president because the Democratic president at the time refused to do the right thing and welcomed the whistleblower as a guardian of the public interest. When whistleblowers expose lies by officials, we the people are served by the whistleblowers. And, and that's, that's what informs my view towards wanting to expand freedom of information, to defend whistleblowers, to stand in Mike Gravel's legacy, and to represent we the people of the United States instead of our intelligence agencies. Well, I know from my travels as a reporter that 
Assange is revered worldwide for his work exposing crimes of U.S. empire from Latin America to the Middle East. I know a major point where you and Pelosi disagree is foreign policy. How would you define her record on international affairs and how would you describe your own worldview and see the U.S.'s role in it? Thank you for raising this question. This is a particularly sharp area of distinction between me and Nancy Pelosi, and it's one that as a uh, as an advocate for primarily domestic civil rights and civil liberties in the United States, I've had fewer opportunities to particularly move forward in my history. But just to lay this out, Nancy Pelosi has been an, an agent of the expansion and aggrandizement of the military industrial complex. She's supported every Defense Department funding request in her history. Same thing with the Department of Homeland Security this spring. <clears throat> she delivered to Donald Trump $750 billion in appropriations. There's never been a sum of that amount spent in all of human history on a military in a single year. And the idea that that's what the Democratic speaker is arranging for this aspiring tyrant, I think, should alarm everyone. Uh, you know, she was certainly, uh, I, I look at her record on international human rights, particularly through the lens of CIA torture. She was read in to the torture program very early. She was the House Speaker, recall, under George Bush. And previous to that, she was the ranking member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. So she has particular insight into the crimes of our intelligence agencies. And rather than blow the whistle to bring the facts forward as international law requires us to do as the law of the land, she instead chose to and continues to suppress evidence of torture by U.S. intelligence agencies. And just to be clear, that doesn't serve anyone except the careers of those human rights abusers. It doesn't serve U.S. national security interests to cover our criminal trail because holding people accountable is how we ensure our actual commitment to human rights. That's how we gain the international goodwill that the generation that brought the Second World War established. And by <clears throat> sweeping our dirty laundry under the rug, all we do is effectively ensure the continuity of those abuses. And that's exactly what Nancy Pelosi has done in spite of not just international law, but also the oath of office to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Also, in spite of her partisan interests, and this is a key point to grip, many people presume that Nancy Pelosi is an effective partisan actor because she leads the Democratic Party. When she refused to impeach George Bush, or slow walked and then limited the impeachment of Donald Trump. Just like when she covered up CIA torture, she was effectively playing for the other team. The only way to reconcile, the only other way to reconcile that set of events is just to say that she's so extraordinarily weak that she advances the other team's interests. And I don't know if that's necessarily any better. I think either of those options is unacceptable. Just to contrast that with where I stand, I am existentially effectively proof of the corruption of our military industrial complex. I wouldn't have grown up in the United States had my family not been forced effectively to flee military governments in proxy powers that the U.S. military industrial complex propped up. In our case, it was <clears throat> Pakistan. The military government <clears throat> that came in in the 80s was particularly vicious to human rights. The assault on our religious sect started long before that. Uh, and <clears throat> this pattern of American extraterritorial interests undermining human rights and civil liberties in other countries, toppling democracies to advance our interests, that is a murderous foreign policy that has placed capital before human rights. 
and it's placed, frankly, filling the pockets of fossil fuel executives before U.S. national security and the interests of Americans. And I think the climate catastrophe demonstrates this better than any other issue, because in many of these cases, these wars that we've undertaken, the war in Iraq comes to particular mind, these were resource wars for fossil fuels. And what comes at the end of it is not just the derogation of democracy, not just widespread abuses of human rights, not just death and misery and destruction and shattered families and shattered bodies, but also, and particularly when we're talking about resource plunder, exacerbating a climate catastrophe and ducking into the punch of a whole set of preventable problems. And I think it's important to look at foreign policy through that intersectional lens. It's not just the corruption of a military establishment that we were warned by its architect would waste our resources and undermine democracy in America. That's what Dwight Eisenhower said on national television almost 60 years ago. Uh, any number of things beyond that reveal the further corruption of that enterprise. And this, the idea of how our resources are wielded in the international stage is for me one of the very defining reasons uh, for our campaign. It's one of the reasons why I feel as a constituent so aggrieved by the longstanding misrepresentation of my city. San Francisco is a proud capital of the movement for peace and justice, and we've been represented for over 30 years in Congress by someone who has approved relentless increases in military spending. Our city, our country, and I dare say the world, deserve better than that. Yeah, I remember, for example, in 2013, I believe Pelosi was one of the leading House Democrats actually pushing President Obama to take more action in Syria in response to the Syrian government's alleged use of chemical weapons, a so-called red line established by the U.S. administration. Under a potential Biden presidency, many of the architects of that war on Syria will be back in powerful positions. How would you challenge them from the Hill? This is a really important question, and I see this as one of the dividing lines between the corporate wing of the Democratic Party and the insightful wing represented by the squad that we hope to blow into a platoon and a battalion and to take over Congress by occupying it with people who will do this set of things. One, leverage the oversight context to shake loose information. One person who I've seen do this to devastating effect was Representative Ilhan Omar, who had an incredibly brilliant interrogation of a Reagan-era war criminal, Elliot Abrams, who continues to lead now. Uh, he's, the, he's Trump's envoy to Venezuela. And this opportunity to shine a light on the past by actually asking the hard questions that members of Congress over the last several generations just don't have the acumen or the awareness to raise, that's step one. Step two <clears throat> is uniting a transpartisan caucus across both the left and the right to rationalize our spending priorities. One of the reasons why our military industrial complex from the Pentagon to the CIA to all the military contractors feels at such liberty to initiate conflict is because there is effectively an unlimited resource stream. The, the fact of, <clears throat> uh, if you combine modern monetary theory with the historical relentless increase in military spending, there's literally no limit there. The military can spend, if Congress is committed to it, everything effectively. And what we need to do here is recognize the chance to reinvest in our communities by diverting funding that is currently going unproductively to destruction and instead put it to some constructive use. Now, there's a, an important parallel here between international and domestic policy. Many of us have been in the streets this spring and summer calling to defund police. It's very analogous to the movement and the call to defund the Pentagon. 
And the point here is not to throw our hands up in the face of national security threats and threats to public safety. The point is to deal with them rationally. And let's talk about our real threats to national security. They include a climate catastrophe that is unfolding in fast motion, not slow motion anymore, across the world. California's on fire. Houston just got hit by two hurricanes at the same time. Uh, Iowa had an inland hurricane, entirely unheard of weather phenomena before. And these will likely continue to accelerate and become more frequent and more severe. And, you know, when we think about the global uh, climate catastrophe as one national security threat, another one that looms large in my mind is the pandemic that has forced an economic shutdown. And a third might be the threats of the election and the continuity of our republic presented by an aspiring tyrant. Not even a single one of those top three threats, climate, the pandemic, and ensuring an election, none of them can be solved with any amount of military spending. You can't force an election with an aircraft carrier. The nuclear weapons program isn't gonna do anything to stop the climate catastrophe. And the pandemic can't be stopped by a next generation strike fighter that's gonna cost two and a half trillion dollars over the course of its life cycle. But we can put those resources to really productive uses like making sure everybody can get medicine. How about that? That's a real national security policy. If we want a national security policy that is actually about the national security of the United States, as opposed to the job security of military industrial complex officials and executives and investors. Then what we should be doing, our top national security needs are Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. That's a national security policy that I'm eager to promote. And I think that we in the squad and the left wing of the party have an opportunity to work particularly with some members of the Republican party who won't see eye to eye with us on the Green New Deal and they won't even see eye to eye with us on Medicare for all, but they do recognize that the relentless increase in military spending and the projection of our industrial interests militarily across the world is untenable. And it grows only more untenable with every passing day under the pandemic. And there's an opportunity to outflank the corporate center on the wings. And that's an area with respect to civil liberties that I've long worked in. I have transpartisan alliances. I helped organize the Fourth Amendment Caucus Advisory Board the last time I worked in Washington before I moved back to San Francisco. And so this opportunity to challenge the center from both sides at once is frankly the key uh, to restoring any meaningful democracy in our country. And I'm eager to advance that agenda in Washington alongside the project of building respect for human rights, defunding our irrational attempts at securing what we call national security and recommitting ourselves to the actual lived security of Americans. You raise such an important point, which is the connection between our, our lack of investment at home and things such as healthcare and education and our overspending, our increased spending on the military. You don't hear that point brought up enough, I think, but I believe it's really at the core of, of what's going on here, the fact that people at home are sacrificed in order to sustain the empire abroad. Shahid, when Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido came to Washington earlier this year, he was not only a guest of honor at President Trump's State of the Union address, he also received a warm welcome from Nancy Pelosi, who posed for a photo op with him and even gave him a standing ovation during Trump's speech. Joining us in the gallery is the true and legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. <laughs> Mr. President, please take this message back to your It was one of the few moments that she showed enthusiasm and was actually endorsing the stance of the president. What is your experience working on Latin America solidarity initiatives? 
you know, I, I look at the welcoming of Juan, Juan Guaido, not unlike the CIA inviting Javier Bolsonaro to, to, to speak at, in Langley. And the idea that U.S., not just officials in the case of Nancy Pelosi, but intelligence agencies, I mean, how wild is it that foreign heads of state are speaking at the home office of the Central Intelligence Agency. I don't. I can't think of analogs in other countries where their intelligence agencies invite foreign heads of state to come and speak at their headquarters. That's a remarkably revealing circumstantial suggestion that our role with respect to Bolsonaro or Guaido or the coup in Bolivia was one not of passive observation, especially when you consider the longstanding period going on decades of repeated CIA interventions across the global south, particularly in Latin America. My work on human rights and civil liberties has intersected Latin America less closely than it has other parts of the world, particularly the Middle East. But the same patterns of corruption that have infected U.S. national security uh, efforts in other regions infect the very same. They, they, they apply across contexts. Plan Colombia comes to mind also as a longstanding example, long preceding the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan of this hyper relentless militarization of Latin America and the idea of militarizing drug enforcement as a pretext to, among other things, increase the violence in any number of countries to undermine the juridical legitimacy of their governments, uh, to empower narco traffickers or paramilitaries, uh, you know, the paramilitarization, not just of domestic police, but also international security forces trained, funded, and equipped in too many cases by anything from the CIA to the School of the Americas or what used to be called that at Fort Benning in Georgia. You know, we have a longstanding commitment to training right-wing despots and putting them in place and in power because they are more friendly to the industrial interests of U.S. corporations than democratically elected leaders from those countries. A lot of Americans might Remember, for instance, we were talking before about how the war in Iraq was particularly for petroleum and fossil fuels. Many of the CIA interventions across Latin America were literally to steal the fruit. United Fruit Company, the precursor to Chiquita Brands, was centrally involved in several of the CIA crews, particularly across Central America in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, the idea that we were literally invading countries to steal their fruit, I think, and it's, it's a, an apt metaphor because you know, it's the literal fruit growing on the trees in some countries, and it's the fruit of the civilizations in others. But in any case, this is a, ultimately an empire building project. And, and I'm running for office largely to ensure that we can be proud of our nation's role in the world, and that it's a role that promotes human rights, that it's a role that stands with the future, that it's a role that doesn't privilege destruction over human dignity. And, and I'm eager to make sure that that becomes our national policy instead of just the rhetoric of those of us on the left. If you win, you'd certainly be considered part of the progressive wave, which has swept Congress in recent years. You already mentioned the squad. I I'm wondering if you consider yourself in line with the squad. Are there areas where you could even push them potentially? AOC, for example, said that she defers to party leadership on Trump's Venezuela coup. There are areas, I think, particularly on foreign policy and constitutional rights, where I think I can add to the squad by just offering some depth of expertise uh, and experience. You know, I've, I've spent over a decade fighting the surveillance state from the NSA to the FBI to local police departments across the country. And I think that that's a set of experiences that might prove valuable in our national legislature as we confront the onslaught of unapologetic fascism. 
I do think that as I look at how the squad has conducted uh, themselves in this congressional session, I'm generally fans. I think there are areas where I might tactically pursue a somewhat different course, you have know, noticed, and I think it makes perfect sense uh, just given their position in Congress and the fact that Nancy Pelosi has so many votes, you know, they've had to approach a somewhat conciliatory strategy in the caucus, and I certainly don't blame them for that. I do hope to, by removing the party leader, enter Congress with a somewhat sharper attitude with respect to the party establishment. And I have no aims to make friends with those folks. I'm not going to Congress to be popular. I'm going to Congress to continue doing the right thing. And it's precisely what the people who preceded us in too many cases have been unwilling to do. One issue that's very difficult for progressive candidates to take on is that of Palestine. This has been demonstrated, for example, in the attacks on Ilhan Omar. Pelosi is particularly supportive of Israel. It's even been reported she keeps the dog tags of three Israeli soldiers who were kidnapped in 2006 to remind herself of the sacrifices of the Israeli people. What is your position on U.S. military support for the Israeli army as well as Palestinian rights? I didn't know the story about the dog tags. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I, have a, I have a song that I dedicated to the intersectional abuses by police and the sordid human rights abuse laundering that we conduct through our support for the IDF. And it's not just the case that U.S. support for Israeli human rights abuses undermines Palestinian rights. It also undermines U.S. human rights because the very same training and tactics, techniques, and in some cases tools used to militarily occupy civilian populations abroad, we have seen used domestically, particularly in the context of the last several months responding to street protests. And this idea that we in the United States are having our First Amendment rights limited because our government has been supporting a different country in how to better innovate in the suppression of its own civilian population is beyond disturbing. And it veers well beyond support for international human rights abuses into outright corruption. Uh, at the end of the day, I would like to see our national resources go towards supporting and promoting international human rights. The very first way to get there is sort of the analogous, it's analogous to the Hippocratic Oath, where to do no harm. And I would like to make sure that our military aid does no harm. What does that mean? It means we can't give military aid and resources to countries that abuse human rights. And just to be clear here, I'm not picking favorites. I don't think Israel should get U.S. military aid. I don't think Saudi Arabia or Egypt should get U.S. military aid either. Any country with a bad human rights record should not be one that we are promoting and propping up because at the end of the day, what that does is plant in the minds of civilian populations around the world that we stand with their oppressors and not with democracy. And this isn't new. This has been the pattern for 70 years. There was a very brief moment, a potential moment of learning in 2001 when some Americans asked the question, why do they hate us? And you know, our president at the time claimed that they hate us for our supposed freedoms, which is preposterous in so many ways, if only because we don't even have the same freedoms as people in other countries. Establishing a right to health care is one of the reasons why I'm running to try to, to, to replace the leader of the Democratic Party, because even the opposition party hasn't supported even our most basic human rights in the United States. Uh, and, and this idea that we have any legitimacy to police the rest of the world is, I think, just a, a gross revelation of our proud ignorance. And we, and certainly the rest of the world in that instance, deserve much better than that. 
Finally, I wanted to give you the opportunity to respond to recent allegations levied against you by a woman in D.C. named Elizabeth Croydon. She claims you sexually harassed her when you were living in D.C. What do you say to her claims, and do you feel you've been able to get a fair shake in telling your side of the story to media? Well, I don't really have a side of the story here because basically there is no story. It never happened. And it's been debunked. Any number of people have come forward from people who knew us both, at the time, other people who Liz has accused, you mentioned one of them uh, at the beginning of the show, uh, any number of other people who frankly have had experiences with my accuser that are far beyond being accused. You know, there's a, I saw an interview with a, a woman by the name of Stacy. I think her last name might've been Haynes from Los Angeles. And she reports having been subjected by my accuser to exactly the treatment that my accuser ascribes to me. And just to be clear, I'm 46 years old. No one's ever accused me of things like that, except for that person. And you know, given the report that that person's apparently done those things to someone else, I just find it really, frankly, amazing that anybody took the allegation seriously. I mean, the issues are super serious, right? Harassment is a really important issue, and women need to be welcomed and included and, and, and feel safe in all spaces. But the idea that people would latch immediately onto a set of accusations means that that person also has accused me of murdering one of my friends. She accused me of human trafficking. And this is five or six years before the recent allegations. And the fact that those allegations were brought to the press by people who I had removed from my campaign team to replace, I think is further suspicious. And it, it is just, it's, it's so transparently obvious to me uh, that there's nothing there. And I know that because I know the person and I know everyone else that she's accused. And I know how she's accused me of things in the past. And I've seen all these people come forward with stories, including her, and none of them have been able to get a microphone. You know, the, my former colleagues have accused me of all kinds of things. Uh, this, this situation with Liz, before that, they tried to pre uh, present and spread gossip about another supposed story, which also never happened. That was the pretext for local clubs here in San Francisco rescinding their endorsements. And the, the local press, even the international press, was amplifying those accusations, even though they were based on fabrication. And I do think that the, this indicates a crisis in journalism well beyond my campaign. I think it indicates a crisis in other values too, particularly race, to see, in my case, a man of color falsely accused and then presumptively judged in public in spite of evidence and witnesses is, I think, a very troubling thing that the San Francisco self-described progressive community hasn't grappled with at all. And there's nothing progressive about presuming guilt when people are accused. There's nothing progressive about ignoring evidence and witnesses. There's nothing progressive about a, a race to judgment. And I, I'm eager to see a recommitment to facts, to the presumption of innocence, and to ensuring that women have access to all spaces safely. And, and I think it's really important that when people hear accusations, that we consider them and think about them seriously. It's too serious an issue to leap to judgments. And I take this stuff seriously enough to have let all the stories come out. And I didn't punch back at my accusers and I haven't said anything, you know, about them. Uh, I've just waited for the facts to come out. And, you know, it was seven weeks ago that these stories were published. And frankly, most of the facts still have yet to be reported by the press. And, you know, there's any number of people locally whose voices have continued to be suppressed. People who my former colleagues tried to recruit to participate in what one among them described in writing shared with us and the local press, which suppressed the text as a smear campaign. And 
again, with evidence like that, it just amazes me that anybody took seriously these accusations. I think it, it, it suggests a crisis in our democracy, again, well beyond our campaign. I might be the target of the accusations, but at the end of the day, the people most harmed by them are the kids in the cages that Pelosi chose to fund and who the people of whichever country she next tries to bomb. And that's why I'm standing here as an, as an immigrant challenging Pelosi and the first Democrat to, to confront her in a generation. It is, uh, it, it is disappointing to me that we are, are discussing claims by people with a documented and expressed interest in attacking me uh, and, 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 and a series of allegations that have shifted every week over the last two months. Uh, and I think that has some bearing on their and reflection of their legitimacy. Again, I would just plead for people to, uh, to apply their critical minds to these accusations. And I, I think a different picture might emerge than the one that was reported in the press. Yeah, I wanted to note that a number of D.C.-based activists, including Kevin Zeese, Margaret Flowers, and Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, published a public letter in response to Croydon's claims, vowing on behalf of your character, integrity, and leadership, and noting that this woman has a history of making similar disruptive claims in the D.C. scene. Absolutely. And if I may just first on the subject of... Uh... You mentioned the letter from, from Washington, and it's interesting to me because the San Francisco Chronicle twice quoted someone described by others among her victims as a predator. And in the second story, quoting that person, they alluded to this letter that you described while misrepresenting it. So the San Francisco Chronicle, the local paper of record, misrepresented the letter. They just said it was a bunch of my friends, valid for my character, didn't even link to it. And the whole point of the letter is that everyone in D.C. knows my accuser which is exactly why the D.C. press would never have printed any of these allegations, because it's just known uh, that history that the San Francisco press didn't know. And in their ignorance, ignored, amplified. And this is the part I really want to press on. When evidence emerged that the narrative promoted in the initial set of stories was fabricated, no one in the local press would cover the story. No one would publish the texts. No one would interview any of the multiple volunteers who've come forward to say that they were recruited, who've been bullied since, in at least one case, into silence by my former staff. You know, they're just the failure of the local press to do the job. And, and that failure of press ethics, I think, also recurs in the story involving Alex Morse. You know, one of the things that I find most alarming in both of our settings is the use of sexualized allegations to, to address political beefs and differences. And, and just to be clear, I don't have any real skeletons in my closet in this way. So my former colleagues built some, like some fake ones, and then brought them forward to the press. And, be, you know, that this is what fabricated narratives do is, is present coordinated uh, falsehoods to depict things that never happened. Uh, and the presentation of Liz's concerns alongside these claims by my former colleagues and then this, you know, series of rumors that they started, it, it is... It's disappointing, it's alarming, it has really, really troubling implications for race that I don't think I, as the candidate targeted by the accusation, can frankly do anything about other than just you know, observe and hope that anybody uh, pays attention to. You know, That's the setting that we find ourselves in. And the idea that Alex was targeted by you know, a homophobic inclination uh, expressing itself in a smear campaign to protect the local establishment all of those things are effectively similar in mind. I mean, it's more Islamophobic than homophobic, and it wasn't coordinated at the top of the local party, but it certainly defended the local establishment. You know, one piece that's also been 
elusive, I suppose, to the reporters covering this has just been the interests of my critics in advancing this critique. You know, I recruited people to work on my campaign from the local progressive establishment, which generally remains beholden to Pelosi. And that's the establishment to which my former colleagues returned. And, you know, the, the idea that, that, that there wasn't um, uh, a political motivation behind these attacks, I think, also just lies in the face of reason when so many points of evidence suggest that this was ultimately a political disagreement brought into the public by the use of false accusations around sexual activity. And maybe the last thing I'd say here is that separate from all the accusations, my former campaign manager in particular published a piece outing my relationship structure. I have a non-traditional uh, set of relationships. You know, I'm not married, uh, I'm not single. And, and the people in my life, we have a community. And, and it, it took my campaign manager exposing that to the public, which I just find really curious uh, insofar as, you know, A, how that relates to the accusations, B, what that might suggest ethically, C, how that relates to what anybody else might think of the allegations and the extent to which they're rooted in a sincere, good faith concern by former colleagues about a bad boss. You know, I'm, uh, I, I'm an immigrant aspirant to challenge an entrenched incumbent. I raised some money, I hired some people. They had very different ideas about what they wanted to do than the ones that I had for our campaign. And I ultimately had to steer the campaign. And in doing that, uh, apparently ruffled some feathers. And uh, it's disappointing that the people whose feathers got ruffled, uh, you know, have tried to burn everything down. Um, I think, it, again, while I might be the named person in those accusations, it is the kids in the cages who are paying the price. And and frankly, I think the trust of the public in democracy, seeing the failures of the press so dramatically with such devastating potential effect to our public policy, to me is something that is certainly very alarming and concerning. I'm disappointed in how it impacted Alex Morris's race. We very well could have had a progressive championing the Green New Deal instead of one of the members of Congress most beholden to corporate industries representing Western Massachusetts. I still have a chance here in San Francisco we have two two months left, a little bit less than that, to knock out the leader of the corporate Democrats. And while the attacks on Alex Morse were unfortunately successful in uh, creating a remarkable headwind for his candidacy, uh, and they certainly have created a remarkable headwind for ours, I have some hope remaining that the facts might yet come to light, that an investigative journalist will actually examine the facts and report them finally, I have one hopes, uh, and that the fuller story here will one day see the light of day. And finally, Shahid, where can people follow your campaign? Thank you, Anya. Folks can visit us online at shahidforchange.us or on any of the major social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, at Shahid for Change. Shahid Buttar, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me.